0: Okay, assalamualaikum, guys, I hope everyone is well And welcome to this live So we've got an interesting topic today uh, Or just some thoughts I want to share In regards to a, or a comparison between two individuals from history One being David Hume and the other being Muhammad Iqbal And the reason I want to do this comparison today Is because, and by the way this is going to be quick It shouldn't take too long so we can go into the Q&A then But the reason I want to do this comparison today is because what we're going to see is how the belief in God or the lack thereof affects you as a human being. What happens when you acknowledge God, that there is a creator who created you with a specific purpose, and how that manifests in your life? and how that allows you to now manifest change in the world around you and how the opposite is true too so when you how how is it when you deny god and turn away from god how does that impact your life how does that transpire and how does that shape your existence and how therefore then continuing from there make you or or a or how do, how does that put you in a if you like how do i put this how does that how does denying god shape your life and how does it now make you impact the world around you i guess that's the two things we want to look at and again it's going to it's it's going to boil down to the conclusion i'm going to make or the conclusion i want to draw today and highlight once again from a slightly different perspective is that if you turn away from god if you deny god number one you lose all awareness of the self what you are as a human being who you are and secondly you lose your bearings in regards to the meaning of life. Why are you here? What's the ultimate purpose and meaning of our existence? There's nothing. So let's start with David Hume. David Hume was a philosopher, an empiricist, a skeptic from the 18th century. Now the 18th century, as I mentioned many times before, is a very interesting period in history, especially European history, because this was the period of the Enlightenment. This was the time, a it was a pivotal moment in history. It was a time... When man decided to shift its focus away from God And to shift shift its focus towards the world The worldly life And a new vision was sold to the world A new focus was sold to the world Which was that our objective, our purpose Is to attain a worldly utopia To attain paradise on earth Now to achieve this objective Everything had, had to be reformed, reshaped Philosophies had to be changed, right? And also, this also applied to the human being, what the human being was and what the purpose of the human being was. What was the self? The question of the self was always a huge, and even continues to be today, a huge point of discussion for philosophers and thinkers. What is the self? What is this I that we refer to? But especially at that point in history, there had to be a shift in the concept of the self. Attention had to be moved away from any concept of the soul or a unified. You know, being, and shifted towards a more of an empirical way of looking at things. Now, David Hume arose in this time. He was a philosopher, a thinker in this time, and he wasn't empiricist, although he was different from many of the other empiricists around at the time. He favored, for example, uh, feelings and emotions over reason, and maybe we can get into this later. But most of the empiricists favored, obviously, reason. Um, But what was interesting about him was that he was someone that because of his empiricism and his skepticism, faced some huge existential challenges in his own life, right? For example, uh, and by the way, his empiricism, or the empiricists of the time, what they wanted to do was, you know, obviously they wanted to see things through the lens of empiricism. So they wanted to basically suggest that, the way we learn about things, the way we know about things is, is simply through observations, through experience of the world around us. That's the only way to know about things. You're born tabula rasa, as John Locke would, would have said. You're born with a blank slate, a clean slate. And then you learn and you acquire knowledge and you develop your, your, uh, your awareness of the world, who you are, everything about you, your personality, all is, all is developed through experience of the world. So the idea of a soul for an empiricist was something which was strange and something they wanted to do away with. And especially at that time, because the objective was to attain this worldly utopia, this paradise on earth, you wanted human beings to be like a sponge because you had to shape the minds of a human being. You had to cut them off from all religious associations, any type of religious psychology that they may have uh, adhere to prior to this time because the focus had to be shifted. It had to be all about the world. And what was interesting was that as soon as you say a human being, as Hume would have said himself, that all we are, for example, according to Hume, the human being, all, we, all the human is, is a set of impressions uh, that are ever-changing, continuously changing. There is no unified self. You know, you are, you are the, the baby you were maybe 30 years ago is not who you are today. You are a completely different being, a different person, according to the empiricist, according to David Hume. And this was important. And along with this, obviously, the thoughts of tabula rasa, we acquire knowledge through experience, etc. All of this led to the understanding, well, all we have to do now is if we want human beings to help facilitate this worldly vision, this vision of a worldly utopia, all all you have to do now is according to the empiricist philosophy, the human being is now just like a sponge. We can teach the human being what we want to teach him. We can give him the skills we want to give him. We can give him the focus we want to give him. And he will do what we tell him to do or what we you know, embed within his mind, the ideas we put inside his mind or her mind, and they will just follow through basically, almost like a cog in the system. So Hume had this view as well, denied the self, and obviously very similar. And the strange thing is that there is an area resemblance to what Hume said and what people like Sam Harris say today is that when you go and search for the self, when you introspect, you look inwards, you can't. You can't find yourself, you know, you can't locate yourself. All you look at, you, you find is emotions and impressions, basically, that we gather from the world around us. And that's it. And this position, his empiricism, his skepticism, he was... Now, when it came to his belief in God, and this, I think, is an interesting point to mention here, you wouldn't consider him an outright atheist, as you would consider Richard Dawkins of today and, and the Harrises of today. Hume was... You would consider him probably like an agnostic type, someone who was neither here nor there, but maybe didn't incline towards the belief in God. However, he was, even if you were to say, hypothetically speaking, he was someone that believed in God, which I don't believe it was the case, he was at best an agnostic. If you were to say he was someone who believed in God, his view was that God has no significance to his life. There is no link between God and existence. Uh, and therefore, the, when it comes to meaning and purpose and the understanding of the self, etc., there is no link to this creator, this cause that may be out there. These are separate things, right? So this outlook put him in a very interesting position. And he writes about this many times. And I've been recently going through a uh, a, a course by Professor Leo Damrush, uh, a brilliant course on the Enlightenment. And he mentions this. And that in Hume's writings, Hume would Uh, speak about his melancholy referring to his depression which stemmed from his empirical perspective his way of looking at reality you know he would question his own existence what am I, why am I here You know, what is this all about and he would realize that there are no answers to these questions and this would lead to a type of existential crises and existential anxiety and depression and sadness and then he would say well and then in his writings he would refer to you know that nature you know, she would come and provide me with a solution. And it's interesting that many of the emperors what they did, and again, the professor mentions this, what the emperors did at the time, although they turned their focus away from God, it's almost a surrogate for, for God now was nature. They would almost, in their writings, when they would speak about nature, they would refer, when you read it, it would seem like they're speaking about a deity, a God-like thing, right? When they would refer to nature, like they would give it a pronoun, he or she, etc., but they wouldn't really acknowledge this. So even Hume would say, oh, you know, nature, she would come and provide me with answers. And what would the answers be? Well, you know, that, you know, we're social creatures. So I would go and spend time with my friends, socialize, play some games, you know, uh, go, go for dinner, etc. And this would remove this state of melancholy. And then he would say he would return back to uh, being by himself and thinking about these things and reflecting upon these things. And in the absence of answers, he would once again find himself feeling depressed and sad. Well, then, what he was referring as a solution by nature wasn't really a solution. It was just a temporary distraction. And Subhanallah, this is something profound about the Quran because, see, the as time goes by, and I know this is a side point, but I think it's very interesting. As the years go by, and you know, time goes by, we realize that we begin to appreciate the Quran more and more from so many different perspectives. The more we learn about history. The more we learn about the world around us, the more the Qur'an unfolds itself to us. Because what does Allah say in the Qur'an? That the worldly life is a delusion. It's a passing, it's a fleeting type of enjoyment. Uh, it's a pleasure of delusion. It's just deception. That's what it is. And that's what Hume was experiencing. The only way he would get over his depression and his sadness was to go and socialize and to go have fun. To go distract himself. Worldly pleasures. And then he will return back to his, by being himself, think about these things again, and oh, there's no answers. According to his worldview, the perspective, the way he saw the world, and then again he would fall into his uh, state of depression and sadness. And it's interesting because these were the movers and shakers of the time. They were the ones who were the thinkers behind the world that we live in today. And them turning away from God was directly impacting them as well. We don't hear about this much. You know, and this, it wasn't only Hume, many of the other thinkers at the time, they were struggling with these existential issues. They turned away from God, but it opened up a whole can of worms for them that they couldn't deal with, right? Pascal, another example, and many, many other people at the time, they had these issues. And one interesting point of reflection is, well, if they had such issues by turning away from God, why do we think that we live in a world today which is any different, where humans are any different? Again, by turning away from God, we're going to run into the same fundamental problems. We're going to lose sense of who we are. We're going to lose sense of what the true meaning and purpose of life is. The same is going to apply. But obviously the same distractions are available to us today as were available to Hume and these individuals. If anything, we can argue more so today, far more distractions today and things to keep us occupied. And obviously this is what people use to almost drug themselves. So the material glitz and glamour of the world is like the opiate, if you like, of the masses today. Taking a spin on what Mark said. Um, so that was a state of human. again, it takes me back to the eye of the Quran, which again now this is going to take me to a nice transition to speaking about Iqbal, Muhammad Iqbal and his way of looking at things. Uh, where Allah says mm-hmm. that indeed you know, that uh, uh, and those that t- turn those that have forgotten uh, Allah that have forgotten their Creator, Do not be like those who have forgotten their Creator. And therefore, as a response to, because of this, God makes them forget themselves. They are the ones who are the transgressors. They have crossed all bounds. As soon as people, and Allah makes again mention to this, and we see this unfolding, this reality that Allah captures in this ayah unfolding. History is testament to the truth of what Allah is saying. We see this in the example of the biggest intellectuals and philosophers of history. Hume as one of the examples we're speaking about today. Do not be like those who forgot Allah and Allah made them forget themselves. SubhanAllah. And this takes me on to Iqbal and Muhammad Iqbal because Iqbal, now again, another public intellectual of his time, born roughly 100 years after Hume, right? He was born in the 19th century, a prolific Muslim writer, poet, philosopher. Uh, many of you guys probably have heard of him or know him and read his works, and, and, and the more you read read his works, one thing you realize is that this man was an absolute genius. But something I want us to focus on is that his genius wasn't because of himself. Absolutely God made him a genius, no doubt. He was he was a brain, right? He was a mind. But a lot of the credit which is not given is is due to is is, is due to his worldview, which was Islam, what he followed and what he believed in. Because he derived his philosophy, his outlook from the Quran itself. And he acknowledged this himself, and he even encouraged Muslims to turn back to the sources, the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet. And it was this particular ayah, which was the bedrock of his philosophy of Khudi. Khudi will discuss this in a second, which is of selfhood or uh, quote unquote ego, but we're going we're to get into this and break this down. Um, and and this was it. So he he basically took this particular ayah, where Allah says, "Do not be like those who forgot Allah, and Allah made them forget themselves." And this was the foundation of his philosophy. But Another thing you realize when you study his work is that he was someone that was fully in tune with the world that he lived in. He understood, you know, the, the, I'm sure he understood the Enlightenment period and and the philosophers at the time and their thinking. And I'm sure he studied them extensively. And the results of what was happening because he was born into a time. Where the, now the manifestations of the thinking of the enlightenment thinkers were starting to transpire colonialism was taking place these ideas were being spread across the world the asian subcontinent africa etc etc he was born in this period and he had the privilege of experiencing both worlds the colonized world or as it was being colonized and the colon, the, the world that was colonizing the rest of the world he had the privilege of traveling to the west and back to the east and he, he got the opportunity to see and experience both worlds and he must, have, he must have really understood and saw the problems of the enlightenment philosophy of a philosophy which pushed the idea that we need to turn away from god and focus on the material world empiricism materialism naturalism all of these types of philosophies that were being encouraged and pushed at the time And therefore, I I believe this was probably maybe, God knows best, but maybe one of the driving factors for him to really pin down and go to the Islamic text and take out a specific concept which was relevant to the world that that we lived in. Because the Enlightenment thinking was taking humanity away from its nature. The nature of man is what? To recognize his creator and to worship him. This is the nature of the human being. The Enlightenment philosophy disconnects the human being from the fitrah this nature, this recognition that the human being has. Hence, we run into problems and issues, right? Hence, you have Hume who has a worldview which when he adopts it, holds on to it, and thinks about life from, from that vantage point, it leads him to depression and anxiety and melancholy, etc. So he understood this and he went to Islam and he went to the, that, that thing that the world needed at the time. And it's a lesson for us Muslims as well. Is that, And this is why I always encourage, we need to try to understand the world, the world that we live in to the best of our ability. Because only then could we go to what Allah has given us and take from there and deliver to the world. That's a need. But we need to first know what the needs of the world that we live in are. And when you do that, then you know what to give them. You need to know what the disease is and then you can give the right medicine. So Iqbal did this and he did this in a profound way with this concept of the Khudi. Now when we talk about the Khudi, there's a very powerful uh, live stream, a beautiful session that I had with Shaykh Fahad Taslim and uh, brother Azimur Rahman definitely check that out it's on the channel it's one of the previous lives that i did where we really go into this concept of the khudi but i just want to briefly i'll summarize it here now when iqbal refers to the khudi this concept of the khudi this selfhood i'm not referring to it as the ego because when when here when when we translate what iqbal meant by khudi into ego it's not the ego we understand from the world that we from our perspective today right see the way the best explanation or description of the ego that I've heard, and I'm gonna share it with you, I think it's very powerful, is that it's how it's it's how we've defined ourselves. So meaning we're born into this world, you can see ourselves as as not as a blank slate tabula, tabula rasa as of Locke, but from a different perspective that that we are we are plain from the experience of the world. We don't have any experience of the world, we don't associate labels to ourselves. We're born plain blank from that perspective. And then as we grow, we start to learn about things around us and ourselves, that these are my parents, these are my friends, these are my siblings, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm born in this part of the world, I'm British, or I'm Pakistani, or I'm Indian. And these are labels, these are identities we start ascribing to ourselves. Then we get older, we start learning and studying. You may become a professor, you may become a PhD, you may become a teacher. Those, again, you start ascribing these labels to you and you start to, you know, these these things define you. This is who you are. Right. So you refer to yourself as my name is, I don't know, uh, you know, John, I am a professor at so-and-so university. I am a lecturer at so-and-so university. I am a PhD. This is how we define ourselves. These are labels we give ourselves. And then when any of these labels are attacked, depending on our relationship with that part of our identity, the way we have come to recognize ourselves, when these labels are attacked, we, we jump to defend it. Right. And and it's this is what you can refer to as the ego. It's this. It's this. It's it's this. It's the way we have defined ourselves, the way we have come to know of ourselves by associating descriptions and labels to ourselves in this world, right? So when those are attacked, we we get angry, we get agitated, we get hurt, we want to defend it, depending on our relationship with a particular identity. That's what you can refer to as the ego, the self, right? But when Iqbal speaks about the ego, he, I don't believe he's referring to this. He What he is referring to when he speaks about the ego, the, 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 to, to, to Khudi, to this concept of the Khudi, selfhood, is what is realized when one understands their true self in relation to the creator. That's the difference. So it's not only referring to the soul or the physical being, but it's a recognition of the self of the human being, yourselves, this identity, this whole that we have within us, via or, or, or through understanding our Creator. So it's linked to our Creator, linked to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's to recognize yourself in relation to Allah, how He created you, what He created you as, why He created you, and recognizing who you are in relation to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the more you get closer to understanding Allah, and closer to understanding your creator and your relationship with your creator, the closer you become to perfecting khudi, this khudi, this selfhood, because it's referring to the self, and that's where the power lies, right? So as you can see, Kabbal's understanding, it's almost like he turned the tables, right? Whereas the Western parts of the Western world and the Enlightenment thinkers were rejecting the self, the concept of selfhood, uh, the, the, the this whole, this self that we recognize ourselves with, They were rejecting this. They were saying there is no such thing as the self, this I. Iqbal went straight to the root and he said, no, there is an I and we have to not only recognize it, but we have to start to identify ourselves with this I, but not the ego that we develop in this world. He was referring to the self, which is recognized through recognizing one's creator. So it's powerful the way he flipped this and the very same I applies, but the other way, Allah says, do not be like those who forgot Allah and Allah made them forget themselves. Okay, let's look at what, what, what this ayah means from the other perspective. Get to know Allah and get to know yourself. So he took this and he gave you a very beautiful spin, subhanAllah. The way he brought this to the world and the way he inspired millions and millions of people and he still continues to inspire people is profound. And what he was saying was that find your true self. And your true self isn't the self you've come to know in this world by associating labels to yourself and weighing yourself down you know, because all of these labels, I'm a professor, I'm a PhD, I'm, a, I'm British, I'm a, you know, so-and-so, These, this is weight that's weighing us down. You know, these are things we've started to associate ourselves from a material worldly perspective. What he was saying was free yourself from these things. And a Muslim, someone who submits to Allah, is someone that's free from all of these external labels. There's nothing that's weighing down on a Muslim. A Muslim is truly free and liberated. Because a Muslim finds his identity Himself through his creator. And he recognizes that he was created to worship Allah alone. And therefore, he is not a slave to anything else in this world. You know, he realizes and recognizes that God created him and he he breathes within him a soul, a ruh, and that's a part of us. He gave us an intellect. He made us rational. He made us vice upon earth, meaning representatives. We this is an obligation, this is a huge burden upon us. You know, but this is supposed to elevate us from slavery to worldly things. Hence, Iqbal many times in his poetry he speaks about you know, being like the eagle or the or, you know or, or the falcon free, flying in the air, above all of these, these lowly things. You know, because what he was reminding humanity of is that you, as a human being, that which was being stripped from humanity at the time, the, the identity of humanity, he wants to remind humanity of the true identity, which is to be recognized through the creator. That you are something special. You were created by God as a special being with a very important responsibility. You have free will even. You have the ability to choose. And He created you and He put you here, God put you here as a viceroy upon earth to establish justice, to do good. You know, and, and to really... And this is why when he... And we don't have time to go into this today, but when he speaks about refining the khudi, you know, really coming to terms with it, he talks about concepts like being fearless in, in, in the knowledge of God. Again, a Muslim is someone supposed to be fearless. Why would you be afraid of anything or anyone when you believe in Allah who is in control of everything? He has power over all things. Fear Allah alone. He talked about concepts of being just being truthful, not being dece- uh, uh, deceiving or conniving, but just to be truthful and honest. He spoke about responsibility. He spoke about um, being a person who was free of, of dependencies in this world. Because we are completely dependent upon Allah And He is the one that provides for us Even if it comes through the means of a means right? But it still comes from Allah We recognize it So we depend upon Him alone Uh, So all of these concepts He pushed to really get human beings To really find themselves again in a world Which was losing sight of who they were Uh, Humanity losing sight of who they really were And see, it's a beautiful thing when you think about it That on one end you had Those individuals who wanted to Take people away from God Because they wanted to sort of Make the most of this worldly life and use human beings to, to, to bring that vision into fruition. And to do this, they were taking people away from their true identity. And on the other hand, you know, what Iqbal did, which was profound, was he went to the final revelation of God, the Quran, the source text, and he brought to humanity that the, the truth of who we are. No, to find yourselves again. What elevates you and what makes you a true human being is, is to recognize your creator And your relationship with your creator That you are his slave and his slave alone And you are not a slave to anything or anyone else And to, you are a self You are a soul to find yourself And, to, and, and you do this through coming closer and closer To Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Close to your creator And it was profound what he, what he did And just again to summarize this, just to conclude Without going on too much Is that at the end of the day As human beings we have a nature God has placed this within us. And this is mercy from God because He's helping us out, helping us find our ways, way back to Him. You know, and this nature has a yearning for its creator and a yearning to worship its creator. Right? This is something within us. If you turn away from God, you'll lose your bearings. You won't know who you are. You will lose track of who you are. You lose track, you lose an understanding of what the true meaning of your life is, the purpose of your life, why are you here? But you will still have these questions within you. You won't be able to escape those questions. They will always be there. And in the absence of answers, you will find depression and anxiety and sadness. And and you you will just be in a constant state of struggle from that perspective. But if you turn back to your creator and you submit to him and you worship him, you will find yourself. You will recognize yourself. And when you find yourself by doing what you were created to do, you will thrive as a human being. You will truly come to life. And not only thrive for yourselves, find yourself, but you would be able to do good things and help others in a truly meaningful way and change the world around you, essentially. So that's what I wanted to share with you. And again, this is why, and it all boils down to the Qur'an, man. The Qur'an is, is, is final revelation from God. But as Allah says, is it's hudan nas and it's hudan muttaqin. It's guidance for humanity. But in particular, those that are going to benefit from it are those who have taqwa, who are conscious of their creator. You know, who, who recognize... That they have a creator and by submitting to him and following his his commands and what he's told us to do you know you will truly find yourself and you'll be able to truly make the most of this life but if you turn away from him you'll lose all your bearings and you you just will, will just lose your way and you know we've seen this and i've touched upon this in many videos before sure progress was made from a worldly perspective yeah sure we had made progress in science and all of these things but look at the look at the the crazy things that have happened in the world because of these this this outlook as well, you know, over the past couple of centuries, because why? Well, because we 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 gained by focusing on the world. We gained a lot of power. We gained a lot of uh, we discovered a lot of things. But with ca- power comes responsibility. And if you if you've lost your ethical and moral moral foundations by turning away from God, how are you going to use that power? It's going to be used in some very strange and crazy ways as well. So it's a it's a very dangerous world that we live in from that perspective too. But anyway, we'll wrap up on that. Just wanted to share those things with you. I hope I hope it was beneficial, inshallah. And 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 I guess one thing I want you to take away from this is to turn back to the Quran, brothers and sisters. Wallahi, Allah has given us what we need to be successful in this life, you know, to put things into perspective in this life, to make sense of reality. Uh it it puts everything, it puts everything in a clear light. And that's what we need to do, inshallah. So anyway, I'll, I'll go to the QA now. If you guys have any questions, please. Please, please uh, do post them now and we'll quickly, we'll probably do QA for maybe 20, 30 minutes and then we we'll wrap up. We're doing actually quite good for time. I thought it went on a bit too long, but it's only been 28 minutes. Alhamdulillah. Okay. Ah, uh, mashallah. Yusuf's on. Pondering soul. Salam. Walaikum salam, bro. I don't know if you're still on, but I just just saw your uh, salams on the, on the questions. Okay, any questions guys, please do post them. I'm just going from the top down, so uh, bear with me inshallah. I'm just going to take a moment to read them. Welcome, salam to all of the guys that have said salam. So Ghazal says... Uh, please reply Can you tell me why Qur'an is not in chronology? Well it depends on what you mean What we mean by chronology See what ends up happening Is that we Approach the Qur'an From an extremely western lens And and what I mean by that is There's something Usad asifuddin has mentioned There's a video on my channel Definitely check that out It's on the epistemic show It's called uh, Between what was it, between Semitic logic and uh, Greek logic. Uh, and what he discusses, and he goes into a lot of detail, is that there, there are different constructions in these two different worlds, meaning in, if, as far as language and writing is concerned as well. So from a Western perspective, you know, or, or a Greek perspective, you have beginning, middle, and end. You have a certain structure that we're used to when we're reading texts and books, etc., cetera, textbooks, storybooks, w- whatever they may be. But when it comes to the Qur'an, it has its own unique structure. It doesn't follow this particular structure, right? So when you talk about chronology, the, we, the way we have to look at it, well, we shouldn't judge the Qur'an by a certain standard. We have to know that the Qur'an has its own standard and its own structure, and it follows its own structure. And when it comes to that, there's a, there's a lot of work that's been done by scholars uh, on the coherence of the Qur'an. Again, Ustad Asif has some really good stuff on the coherence, the coherence of the Qur'an uh, which is some of it's on my channel so you guys can definitely watch that. Ustad we'll Asifuddin yeah, you'll see his videos on the channel as well inshallah uh, so that's in regards to that uh, Hamza I think Zuni said uh, Hamza I think you're referring to the other live we were supposed to have today we had to cancel it but we're going to reschedule it It's on the. it's going to be on the sapiens youtube channel so if you guys haven't already make sure to subscribe to the sapiens youtube channel and we're going to be doing a live on that maybe end of this week or next week inshallah Uh, Let's see. Yeah, apologies, guys, for some of the people that have come on and just been swearing. Um, Just ignore those guys. Uh, What do you mean? Uh, Sorry, I think some people are asking about the book that I'm writing. Yeah, it's called, the the working title, part of the title is going to be Dying to Believe. It was a title that Hamza gave uh, when we discussed the book. And I think I'm definitely going to stick to it. I think it's a powerful title and it relates fully to the book itself. And the book basically is going to cover a few, it's going to be basically my journey to Islam. But it's going to be intertwined with loads of different uh, arguments, thoughts, etc. So gonna it's going to be it's going to be a very unique structure that you know you probably haven't come across much as far as Islamic books are concerned so uh, it's currently in the third stage of edit so it's with my uh, editor uh, inshallah so as soon as she's done with the stat edit then it's going to be a fourth edit and then maybe another edit so it'll probably be maybe early next year when it comes out we uh, want to take my time with it we don't want to rush it it's just so just just to get it out But inshallah it's coming it's on the way So it's an interesting point by Muhammad Taj. He says our identity is formed from the socialization and what we learn from our environment. The fitra can either be kept pure or can be corrupted. Beautiful point, absolutely. So the environment, we can see now the, the the relationship between the environment and the fitra. So if the if if the child is given a the correct environment, which is which is conducive to enriching and and allowing for the fitra to to flourish, then that's what happens. And Islam provides that perfect environment. And if it's not, then there's a there's a there's a struggle, and eventually it falls in one of two ways: either the fitra becomes dormant, covered up, clouded, whichever way you want to look at look at it, or if somehow a person and and sometimes the, a person could go through have grow up in a very anti-fitra environment, but may have certain experiences in their life which leads to the awakening or the emergence of the fitra. Or then becoming aware of the fitrah. so yeah, Allah knows best. Allah, Allah works in in the most amazing ways, and He can take someone in the worst situation and guide them to Islam and, and awaken the fitra. But it's a very beautiful point. Zakir, help sharing. Let's see. So this is an interesting point. Let's see if we can deal with this. Iran, Bro. I think I found a way of. Uh, defining allah's self in terms of modern conceptions uh, my definition of Allah is that Allah is the transcendent internal absolute realm in which the uh, ephemeral is contained okay uh, one thing i would advise brothers and sisters is 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 look we have to get across who Allah is to the non-muslims of today absolutely We have to use language they understand. Don't use complicated and big words because that's something you've done there. You have used words there which most people are not going to understand and be able to conceptualize. So they're going to need to understand the words before they can understand what you're trying to say, right? So you don't want to fall into that trap. Make it easy for people. Use language that people understand. But at the same time, we have to be very careful that we don't say something about Allah that Allah hasn't said himself about himself. Uh, Otherwise, what would be the point of revelation, right? So we have to be very, very careful and work within those bounds. So always think about using simple language when trying to convey to non-Muslims in regards to who Allah is, but at the same time, don't use language which doesn't relate to or explain what Allah has told us Himself in the Quran or in the Sunnah about Himself. So be very careful. And if you're not if you're in doubt, always check with someone of knowledge, inshallah. Um, so for example, when you're talking about Tawheed and you're talking about the oneness of Allah in regards to His lordship, you know, we want to get across the point. What? We want to get across that Allah is the creator. The maintainer the sustainer the provider and again you can see that some words that i've used there which may be quite alien to the person you know generation z for example people of today the youth of today how what does sustainer mean yeah what does nourisher mean what does cherisher mean uh, what, uh, what does even creator mean unfortunately in some cases so we have to be, we have to think about how do we simplify these words but not lose what we're trying to get across and not say something which is not true so, you have to really think about this. And if you're not sure, definitely check with someone, inshallah. Okay. It's <sighs> to everyone that was on. Uh, let's see any other questions. Another beautiful point by Brother Muhammad Taj about purifying and nourishing okay. and developing the fitra, as Allah mentions in Surah Shams. Uh, so I'll just put it up for you guys to read. Okay. So Mashallah. some of you guys have re- left some really nice statements. I won't be able to share all of them on the screen but may Allah bless you guys for leaving these. Some very profound insights you guys have. Uh, Shared, let's see. Okay, so some questions about Sufism, etc. What I think um, in regards to those things. I'll probably think about it a bit, bo- bit more Before I share my thoughts Because you know, words are very powerful And can be very dangerous So I don't want to say something Which uh, may confuse people Or throw people off Or say something which isn't true So I'll hold my thoughts In regards to certain Islamic groups and perspectives And things like this But one thing I would say Is that spirituality is a part of Islam um, So at the very least One thing we should all focus on Putting aside names, labels, groups Is to not forget the spiritual realm Of Islam Which is you know, to 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 have that relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Obviously in line with the way Allah has told us in the Quran and the Sunnah. That goes without saying because otherwise, again, what's the need for revelation if we're gonna make up things uh, for ourselves and ways for ourselves? Um, but everything is there. But unfortunately many sometimes, especially in the times we live in, we we tend to focus a lot on the this on on discussions about scholastics and things like this and very little on the spiritual side of Islam. Um uh, so we have to, I think there has to be that balance. Uh, that's what I would say as a general point. But I'm not, uh, I am not. Uh, I think I'll leave it at that for now. But one thing I do want to mention also is whenever I refer to people like Iqbal, Muhammad Iqbal, Lama Iqbal, um, or other thinkers, it, I want you to understand I make a reference to them because of the reference, reference they make to the source text. And that's what inspires me about people like Iqbal is that he was all, he, he, he was all about the Quran and the Sunnah he was all about going to the source text uh, and and thinking and pondering upon the Quran and and deriving you know ideas from the source text itself. So that's why I said earlier resort well, it's like we have to give credit like it's the Quran that sh- that's some of the greatest thinkers in this world have been Muslims. Unfortunately we don't hear about many of them today and it's because they they were Muslim they they their, their foundations was a text which was completely coherent and made sense of reality you know and and that's a powerful starting point for anyone and and this is what you see people human i'm not i'm not David Hume was in, in, in certain spheres maybe a genius and some of his thoughts that I've come across in regards to how emotions influences us in, in regards to decision making and how it's not that we reason to a conviction but if we have a conviction and then we reason backwards and things like this profound thoughts you know profound ideas that he made and he shared at a time where people didn't agree with his views and we can agree with a lot of those things but you can see when it comes to the understanding of the soul for meaning and purpose he was lost and the great thinker that he was he was completely lost why because he had the wrong foundation to start with a skeptical uh, empirical type of agnostic position uh and and this is what happens so we have to always go back to the source text and that's the key here going back to the quran and the Sunnah, and sticking to the source text because they are they make sense of our lives they make sense of reality and that's what guidance is. Allah says the Quran is guidance for humanity. You know, it's supposed to put things into perspective for us, and that's exactly what the Quran does. It makes sense of our own lives, our own existence, the purpose of our life. It makes sense of the world that we live in. I mean, tell me this, guys. I want you to think about this. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to give you this uh, thought experiment, and I want to know. I want to see if anyone can give me the answer here. Which philosophy, worldview, religion, other than Islam? has been able to put into into context the reality of life from this perspective. On one hand, you have the universe, right? The physical universe. And when the scientists study it today, they look look at it, they say, well, fine-tuning, there is order, there are the laws that govern this universe, the laws of physics, laws of logic, mathematics. It's 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 precisely fine-tuned. Even atheist scientists would acknowledge this, but say it looks designed, like Dawkins. Or it looks designed, but it's not designed. They would even say this. That's one side. That's one aspect of looking at reality. But from the other end, from our lives, our personal lives, there's chaos, there's disorder. You know, we do something good, but something bad happens. We go through hardships, trials, you know, uh, calamities, and there is a lot of disorder from another perspective. Same world, same reality. Two different pers- two different elements to the same reality. What worldview other than Islam has been able to reconcile both of these and give us a coherent uh, account for these two aspects of the same reality? Nothing. No worldview. Uh, what's funny is whenever they've tried, they've gone completely off track. For example, recently I was watching a, a lecture about the canines, uh, a particular Christian sect or group, uh, that existed near the time or just after the time of, of Jesus, peace be upon him. And their view, uh, I think it was the Canaanites. their view was that to, to do everything the opposite of what God has told you to do because they didn't believe that uh, that the Creator, the High Creator, the real God created this world. And the reason they didn't believe this was because of all of the the hardships and trials and atrocities the evil that existed in this world right? Because they couldn't reconcile this They said well this big god and there were other gods And then some of the, one of the gods escaped from the realm of other gods And then that god uh, gave birth to certain gods who, who created this world And hence because they weren't perfect from that perspective They had these strange philosophies right? so, And they said that the bible or what Jesus was given uh, May Allah's peace and blessings be upon him What he was given was from this lower type of bad type of god Crazy thoughts, right? But Just because they couldn't reconcile reality. Atheists today, the reason they turn away from God is because of their misunderstanding of the world. Problem of evil. Which there is no other religion or way of life which completely comprehensively addresses these different realms or aspects of reality other than Islam. And how beautifully does Islam put this into perspective? 1400 years ago, Allah tells us very clearly, He created life and death to test which of us is best in deeds. Indeed, in the creation of the heavens, I'm going to give you two ayat. Two verses of the Quran which completely comprehensively address this problem that no one's been able to answer. One of the ayahs is in uh, Surah mulk One of the first ayah, Allah says, uh, uh, "Where He created life and death." I'm not the Arabic's not coming to me right now, but we created life and death to test uh, to test which of us is best in the deeds. The I think it's it. Uh, I don't remember the Arabic, Arabic but. To, he created life and death to test which of us is best in deeds. That's one thing Allah tells us. The other thing Allah tells us, uh, nahari <speaking> al In, <Hebrew> in, in uh, Surah Al-Imran, the 190th verse, Allah says, and this is just one of many ayat like this, where Allah says, Indeed, in the creation of the heavens and the earth, and the alternation of night and day, in there are signs for people of deep thought. Now, let's look at these. On one end, when Allah is referring to the creation of the heavens and the earth, He's telling us that these are signs, right? So one aspect they're going to be signs is in their construction. When we look at the universe, it's ordered. It has laws. It's governed by precise laws. It's it's, it's whole; it's maintaining its uniformity. Makes sense of the order of the universe. These are signs for us. The thinking man, the thinking woman to reflect upon and, and for, them, for it to lead them to the conclusion that they have a creator. Clear signs. The order of the universe makes sense. But from the other perspective, human life, God tells us life is a test. So within this universe, which is created as a sign for us and it follows a particular order and it has laws and it has this precision. But there's another element to to this world from the human experience perspective where there is chaos and disorder. Why? Because God says he created life and death to test which of us is best in deeds. So we're going to be put to the test via certain evils certain difficulties, hardships that we will go through. This is a life to test us. We're going to be tested to see what we decide to do, how we manifest our worship of God in this life. If it was all perfect, well, then where is the test? So can you guys see how beautifully... And these are just... I've just thought about this now. I mean, if I, if you were to sit down and give it a thought and really put these things together, you would see how Islam comprehensively addresses all those loose ends, the supposed loose ends, that philosophers and thinkers and other religions have not been able to solve for since 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 God knows how long, right? Because what maybe the prophets, earlier prophets, did come with these truths, but obviously man changed this. And when man changed it, you know, they changed what was good as well. So Islam comprehensively addresses all of those loose ends, those problems that philosophers and thinkers have not been able to solve. So Allah makes gives us a clear understanding sure the world is ordered it's fine-tuned to allow for intelligent life to exist and on top of this this fine-tuning acts as a sign for us which points us back towards our creator helping us find god and worship him but at the same time we were created in this life to be tested so we're going to go through hardships and trials and tribulations and all of these types of things so from that perspective now we can see that no it's not chaos and disorder but this life has been constructed in the most beautiful way possible, for for it to function, it's fit for purpose. It's more, it's perfectly fit for purpose. When you when you understand what the purpose of this existence is, that's how profound it uh, Islam is. It addresses all of these things in the most profound and beautiful way. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to share that with you guys. So this is, and again, this is one of the most amazing things about Islam and the Quran that we need to start sharing with people, how it can comprehensively address the issues and problems. Of people how you can comprehensively address those issues and problem those philosophical issues and problems that no one's been able to account for and explain Islam has the answer to all of these things okay so I think we can wrap up guys I think inshallah unless there's any more uh, questions Uh, I don't think so I don't think if I missed any of your questions apologize, I apologize now inshallah may Allah bless you all JazakAllah khair for coming on make sure to uh, if you guys haven't already sub- subscribe and click the notification bell if you do subscribe because uh, YouTube works in funny ways mysterious ways if, if whenever I post the video even if you've subscribed you may not get a notification to it unless you click the bell so definitely click the bell and definitely share this with everyone inshallah uh, so others can benefit too may Allah bless you all And I will speak to you guys next week on another live stream, inshallah. May Allah bless you. Asalaamu alaikum.